Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast about sex and sexuality, with an emphasis on BDSM kink and poly relationships. I'm your host, Wicked Fellow, and this week we're going to talk about how to deal with stress like a man. But this is a lesson in non-toxic masculinity. I know that the title of this one's a little clickbaity. I did this because it is my place to talk about these things from a male perspective and the messages that men get, the social conditioning that men receive on how to be a man, what's masculinity, etc. Some of those lessons are very toxic and some of those lessons create men that aren't nearly as durable and strong and tough as you would think because it makes them very brittle. We're going to get into a lot of this stuff Before we get started, I want to send a shout out to our Patreon followers. You guys are the absolute best. I have been a bit remiss on the weekly updates because our life kind of exploded this week. And Katja and I are in kind of an ongoing crisis, not between the two of us. This is us facing an outside crisis. And at the moment, it's still all up in the air. So we haven't got a resolution yet. And... Katya was in New York last week. I was here dealing with a lot of really difficult stuff. So I had to push off the podcast and the weekly update. It's been everything I can do to keep my head above water. But I'm back. I'm here with you guys, and I will get the weekly update out this week. Before I get into this episode, which is, in fact, about how to deal with stress like a man, I want to have a very strong caveat at the beginning of this, which is... One of the more destructive things that men are told is when they're undergoing stress, when they're undergoing depression, anxiety, all these things, they're told to man up. They're told to just deal with it. They're told to just toughen up and quit being a baby and be a man. And I absolutely don't want anything that I'm saying today to fall into that category because seeking help is very good. It's very healthy. It's very manly, by the way. And a lot of people also classify all of that being a man nonsense with, well, real men don't need antidepressants. Real men don't need medication to structure their lives and deal with harsh realities. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And I want to tell you a little bit about myself, which I think might be a little enlightening to you. Every day, I take one of these little little white pills because I have a pretty significant hormone imbalance. And without these little pills, I am useless. I am seriously debilitated. And it's all because of a hormone. It's because my body doesn't produce enough of or overproduces a certain hormone. And that hormone is histamine, right? These are antihistamines, and I need them. Because without my antihistamines, I have the worst allergies. I have hay fever in the summertime, and I'm allergic to whatever it is around here in the wintertime. And it's not just a little runny nose. This is seriously debilitating stuff. I can barely see. My throat isn't just, it's like it's made out of sandpaper. And I suffered through this as a kid because nobody recognized that I had severe allergies, and they just told me to tough it out and be a man. I didn't start taking antihistamines until I was a teenager, and it changed my life. And I'm not, I'm not in any way being facetious here. Without an antihistamine, a daily antihistamine, a simple little white pill, I really can't function during, especially like high allergy points of the year. And no one's ever given me a hard time for taking antihistamines. No one's ever told me that I was less manly because I take antihistamines every day. No one's ever questioned my moral fortitude or told me I was weak or made fun of me in any way because I take antihistamines. And there's no difference between me taking an antihistamine and someone taking an SSRI or whatever they need to help them balance their body's chemistry. And you really need to look at it that way. A lot of people have this strange mindset of, oh, an antihistamine, that's fine. You know, if if you have hay fever, take an antihistamine. What's wrong with you? But when people are depressed or they're anxious or whatever is wrong with them and their brain chemistry and they seek help and they take a medication for it, oh, they're being weak. There's something wrong with them. They just don't want to tough it out. There's 
I don't know about all that. And there's a huge stigma around that. And it's ridiculous. And I'm not making light of people that have to take an antidepressant medication or an anti-anxiety medication by comparing it to my admittedly trivial antihistamine. I'm very fortunate, and I realize that, that I don't need an SSRI or an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication to deal with my stress or depression or all that kind of things. All I need to do is take an antihistamine and I'm good to go. But there are people that absolutely need to take these drugs. There are people that absolutely, in order to function, in order to sleep at night, in order to help balance their brain chemistry, they can be helped significantly by medications. And we need to destigmatize that. We need to let people seek out the help that they need and quit demonizing it. And I mention this now because it's become very popular in certain media to blame these SSRIs and antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications for things like school shootings, which is fucking ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. You're stigmatizing people that need to take these drugs to function and you're saying that they cause things like school shootings, how dare you? How stupid can you be? You're trying to dissuade people who might very well need something like an antipsychotic medication or an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety pill, and you're trying to demonize them and make them not want to take them because of your bullshit, non-scientific opinion that, oh, these school shootings are linked to Adderall? I don't have any patience for that kind of nonsense. So I am going to talk about ways to deal with stress and anxiety. I am going to talk about things that I do personally to deal with anxiety and depression and stress and the things that we all experience. And nothing I'm saying can replace medication if medication is what you need. Because even if you were able to practice all the things that I'm going to talk about better than I can do it you still might need an antidepressant. You still might need an anti-anxiety pill because the way that your brain is functioning, the way that your body chemistry is working, you might need that additional tool to get you across the finish line. I can't just tough out my allergies. I can't. I, I've tried and it's miserable. Or I can take a little white pill that helps me get through each day. And there, in my mind, there is absolutely no difference. So if you have a severe anxiety, if you have severe depression, if you have something with your particular brain chemistry that you need a little balancing, seek that out. You know, the stuff that I'm going to talk about is good advice. It helps me get through the days where I have huge stress and anxiety and depression. It's a tool, but it's only one tool. So I'm in no way saying be a man, tough this out, don't seek help. That is not what I'm saying in any way. Okay, so I've made myself very clear with that disclaimer. I am very pro mental health counseling, mental health medication, whatever you need. You know, I am not telling you just to tough it out. Having said all that, let me tell you how I tough it out. So the first area that I want to talk about are intrusive thoughts. And intrusive thoughts are a big part of people's stress response, anxiety, often depression as well. And that is when you're trying to concentrate on something, you're trying to do your work, you're trying to read a book, you're trying to listen to music, you're just sitting peacefully and trying to relax. And you manage a couple sentences in a book. And then there's just this tidal wave of intrusive thoughts. And these intrusive thoughts can be sometimes little petty minor annoyances an argument you had 10 years ago, a dumb thing you did yesterday, or a serious problem that's looming over your life that is a true stressor, is something that you do need to act upon, but you can't necessarily act upon it at that moment, right? You have a big meeting tomorrow at work, and they're going to discuss your pay, and they're going to discuss whether or not they hire you on for another year, and that's very stressful. And it's very easy to fall into this trap of continuing to chew on it and it keeps coming back and you try to push it out of your mind and you succeed for three or four seconds and then wham, incoming intrusive thoughts and you just can't get rid of them. You know, intrusive thoughts are a serious symptom 
if you have major depression, if you have major anxiety, if you have major stress response difficulties, that's one of the things that people are trying to deal with. And it can seem very simplistic to be like, oh, well, stop thinking about that. Stop worrying about that. That doesn't work. You can't just tell yourself, stop worrying about this. Stop thinking about this. That's, it's overly simplistic. And the mental strength that it takes is not really the problem. It's not that you're weak-willed. It's not that you are in any way defective if you can't stop thinking about these kind of problems. Because everybody deals with this on a lower level. Some people deal with it on a level where no matter how hard they try, no matter what they do to distract themselves, no matter what's going on with them, these intrusive thoughts just keep coming and they can't stop them. And that leads to, in some cases, extremely bad outcomes. So I'm going to give some tips and tricks that I use to deal with intrusive thoughts. And they do work for me, but it's not easy. And I'm not saying that you're always going to be able to just tough it out. So if after listening to these tricks and trying these tricks and these tips, you're still having difficulty with intrusive thoughts, you're still having difficulty mastering this, doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It means that you need another tool. You might need an anti-anxiety medication, for example, that can help you with this. So intrusive thoughts, you know, like I said, last week, uh, Katya and I received some very stressful news. And, you know, for the first day after we got this news, I was a wreck. I was having a very hard time just completing my daily tasks. I'd start to be washing dishes and realize that I was standing there holding the same cup for five minutes, rehashing this problem and thinking about this problem and going over all the possible scenarios and possibly bad outcomes and possibly good outcomes, but to the point where I did not want to think about it. I wanted to let it go. I wanted to put it aside because at that moment, there was nothing I could do about it. So one of the tools that I use and this is a good sorting mechanism. And this is kind of step one. And it's what I tell Katya. It's what I tell all my subs. It's something that I have practiced since I was very young. And I honestly, I can remember the day that I had this revelation. If I've ever come up with wisdom, I've had two flashes of wisdom in my entire life that I didn't get from somebody else that I came upon out of my own creativity, as it were. The first one is worrying doesn't solve anything. You can worry as hard as you want about a problem and it will not change it. If you're worried about the conflict in Ukraine, go into a closet and worry as hard as you can and it will not change jack shit about the war in Ukraine. Worry is harmful. Worry is toxic. And it's very hard to not worry about something that affects you deeply. It's very hard to not worry about a big problem that you have. So we got to break it in, into sections. The first section is separating out action from worry and anxiety. And I tell Katya all the time, fix the things that you can and let go of the things you can't. Okay. Simple example. Yesterday, we were driving back from dinner, and I misjudged a yellow light, and I went through. It was purely red. You know, there was no side traffic. Part of the reason I missed the yellow light is I was looking to see if the side streets were clear, but I misjudged it. We've all done this. There, Maybe there was a red light camera there. So, I might have gotten a ticket yesterday. This is not the big stressor. I'm not going to know for about two weeks, right? If you trigger a red light camera, they send you a ticket in the mail, and it says... You ran through a red light and you now owe us 50 or 70 or $100, whatever it is. I could worry about it from now until I die and it's not going to change anything. I either triggered a red light camera or I did not trigger a red light camera. I don't know. But worrying about it isn't going to change anything. So it's kind of Schrodinger's worry. I can choose to worry about it, which will change nothing and will make me anxious and feel bad and have anxiety and press down my already bad mood. Or I can say, if I got a ticket, I'll pay the ticket when I get it. Otherwise, in two weeks, if I don't get a ticket, I will have forgotten about it and I'll go on with my life. 
I'll be a little bit more careful the next time I'm at a red light camera. And this is a very healthy coping mechanism when you're dealing with stress. Because, like I said, there's literally nothing I can do. I can't worry this ticket away. I can't lay in bed at night and worry really hard and make this ticket go away. So if I got a ticket, I'll pay it. If I didn't get a ticket, great, I'll be more careful next time. And that's it. And I let it go. And that has not come back to me until I use it as an example here. You know, it's very easy to worry about that kind of stuff, especially if finances are tight and my finances are tight. But again, if I get the ticket, I'm going to have to pay it. And I'll deal with that when I can actually act on it. When I get that ticket in the mail, I will pay it and I will have solved the problem. Until I can act on that problem, worrying about it is useless. So that is how I break out the action and worry in my life. I'm faced with a situation and I have to decide, okay, this is a bad situation. What can I do about it? What are the steps that I can take to remedy this situation? I will do those things. These other things that are out of my control, the actions of another person or a system like the U.S. government or the war in Ukraine, those things I cannot affect. I cannot change. I can only worry about them. And if I can only worry about them, I let them go. So that's my sorting category. I act on the things I can and I try to act on them immediately. The things I can't change, I let go. Now, I wish it were that simple. I wish that everything in our life could be neatly split into two piles, the things that aren't worth worrying about and the things that we can act on. Those intrusive thoughts are how this is all tied together. Because, sure, I could be standing at the kitchen sink tomorrow and that red light camera could pop back up in my mind. And I could be like, oh man, am I gonna have to pay 75 bucks because I was a little inattentive? Ah, oh, that's, that's a bummer. That's an intrusive thought, but it's something that I can deal with if I can say, hey, you know what? You did or you didn't. You don't know. There's no point worrying about it. And if that gives me the peace and comfort and confidence and lets that go and I stop thinking about it, I have coped with that particular worry. So that's easy. And I started with something that simple and something that is very cut and dry. The situation that Katya and I were dealing with is much more complicated and it's much more important and much more severe than a traffic ticket. And unfortunately for me, I spent all last week working on the problem that I was trying to solve. I had a lot of things that I could do, actionable items that I could do to try to remedy the situation. And I spent all week working on them. And unfortunately, when you're working on the problem, it's very hard to not worry about the problem. You're working on the thing that you're worried about. So it's constantly being reminded to you. Everything that you're doing is in relation to the thing that you're feeling anxious about. And that's, that's rough. So you have, you're a college student and you're working on an exam paper that you need to have a good grade on or you will fail the class. It's very hard for me to tell you don't worry about it because you're actively working on it. So in that situation, yeah, you got to do the best you can, you know, do the work, take comfort in the fact that you are doing everything you can to solve the problem. Once you finish that paper, once you write that paper and you turn it in, you got to let it go because it's now out of your hands. And any further worry, any further anxiety, any further time spent thinking about that paper that you've already turned in is wasted. You're wasting that time worrying when that worry is pointless and ineffectual. So do the best job you can on actionable items and then let them go. While you are working on the actual item, while you are working on the things that you can do, that's where I have a hard time with those intrusive thoughts because they just keep coming like waves on a beach. I'll get five minutes of peace and quiet in my mind and then I move on to the next task and bam, there's that thought again. There's that anger or that anxiety or that problem staring me straight in the face. And I'm not going to lie, like last week was extremely difficult. It was one of the worst mental health weeks I've had in a long time. And I've had some extraordinarily stressful events in my life, things that I've been through that I barely made it through, things that I've had to deal with that were you know, literally life and death. 
last week, we're, we're on that same level as far as stress and anxiety, which is why I'm having this podcast. It was very easy for me to select this week's podcast topic because this is what I've been dealing with, quite literally holding my mental health together. Because one of my weaknesses, one of my things that is very easy for me to fall into is if I get super stressed and anxious and depressed, I kind of shut down. It's very easy for me to go into a dark room and close the curtains and close my eyes and just not deal with it. That's always a temptation. That is always something that is very attractive when the stress gets too much, when the depression is too heavy to deal with, when the anxiety is just eating away at me, it's really easy to go be in the dark. And I literally didn't have that option. I had to work on the things to try and solve this problem. So I had to keep myself going. I had to push myself. I had to stay focused and I had to stay on task because I had a very limited amount of time to complete a huge amount of work. So there was no opportunity for me to go lay down in the dark, which is all I really wanted to do. I also know from hard experience that once I'm laid down in the dark, it's real hard to get back up. You know, that's the level of depression that I deal with, which I know is much less than a lot of people deal with. A lot of you might deal with much more severe depression than I do, but I do have a depression issue. I do it is easy for me to get down into that deep, dark hole and have a very hard time getting up. It hurts physically. It hurts mentally. It hurts emotionally. Depression is a very insidious and difficult mental health issue. And I do not discount anybody's experience with depression. This is not a matter of my depression is worse than yours or your depression is worse than mine. We're all dealing with what we're dealing with, right? I've always had this, this kind of continuum in my life. You know, if you're eight years old and you fall down and you skin your knee, that might be the worst pain you have ever experienced in your short life, right? And someone coming up to you and saying, oh, well, that skinned knee is nothing. I lost my arm in Vietnam. What are you crying about, kid? Pain doesn't work like that. Pain isn't something you can compare and contrast and say, because I've been through worse pain, you shouldn't complain about the pain you're going through. That's very selfish. It's very short-sighted. Because, you know, when you're talking to that eight-year-old kid, they are literally in the worst pain they've ever been with. You know, in a few years, maybe they break their arm and now they know, oh, well, a broken arm hurts worse than that skin knee that I have. And when they get to be an adult, they might learn that a broken heart hurts even worse than that broken arm. But we have to deal with everyone where they are at. And I have no tolerance for comparing and contrasting pain. You know, I've personally had very severe pains. I've had some pretty significant injuries. But I know that I am not the world champion at pain and suffering. There are people that I know that have suffered far more intense pain than myself and there but for the grace of God go I. I don't, there's no point in contrasting and comparing this, but there is a point in being sympathetic and understanding that when you're talking to someone and they say, yeah, I just had a bad breakup and I'm feeling really down and my heart hurts and I'm really depressed. That is not the time to say, oh, well, wait till you have this bad thing happen to you. No, be sympathetic, understand that for them, this is what they're going through. This is the situation they're in. This is their life experience. And whatever has happened to you, good or bad, you have to not try to somehow insinuate into them that what they're going through doesn't matter because there are worse trials and tribulations. That's not helpful. That's not going to help them. I was talking to a fan recently who has somehow managed to make it into their 20s and never cut their hand on anything, which was astonishing to me. This is a little side note, because I cut my hands all the time. I'm a, I'm a cabinet maker, so I'm working with sharp tools, but I've done rough physical jobs my whole life. I can't tell you the number of hundreds of times that I've cut my hands. 
when I was having that conversation with them, I had three significant cuts on my hands at that moment. So for them to tell me that this was the first time that they'd ever cut themselves was kind of astonishing to me. But it doesn't mean that that cut hurt any worse or less than the cut that I got yesterday, just because I've had a hundred of them. So you, you take people where they're at. You deal with people where they are at when it comes to their pain, their suffering, their depression, their anxiety, etc. It's very harmful to diminish somebody else's experience because you've been unlucky enough to have a worse experience. That, that's not helpful. I know I got in a bit of a tangent there. What I was saying is that the stress that I was dealing with last week was very high-level stress for me. You know, how much stress? Enough that I lost 10 pounds. And mind you, I could stand to lose another 10 pounds. But one of my stress responses is that I'm just not interested in food. I don't get hungry. And when I try to make myself eat, it's just I kind of sit there and stir my food around on the plate. I'm just not hungry. So several times throughout last week, I had to remind myself, like, it's been 24 hours. You've had a cup of coffee. You need to eat something because you need to keep working. So, yeah, very heavy levels of stress. And one of the things that was so difficult about last week was this cascade of intrusive thoughts. Whenever I got a moment of peace and I got, you know, focused on my work or I was listening to a book or trying to listen to music, I'd get you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of calm. And then before I knew it, I was rehashing the problem. I was going over dialogues in my head. I was thinking about what I was going to say. I was trying to problem solve because that's kind of how we're wired, right? I think that's kind of the main problem is when we're faced with a situation, a difficult situation, we start scrambling to solve the problem. Sometimes that scrambling is useful and we can use that as actionable things we can do to solve the problem. But unfortunately, at least in my mind, sometimes it's just spinning that wheel over and over. You're stuck in the mud and you've got the accelerator floored and you're just digging a deeper hole in the ground. You're not making any forward progress and you need to know when to get off of the accelerator and find a different way to go. That's my problem. Maybe some of you have a similar problem. And I know from counseling that I've done, especially with people that have, you know, PTSD, those intrusive thoughts are one of the biggest problems they have. You know, it comes unbidden, it's unwanted, and they can't stop. They just keep rehashing that stressful event. And it creates a real anxiety response. That's unfortunately how the human mind works is that we can talk ourselves into being happy. We can talk ourselves into being sad. We can talk ourselves into being stressed and anxious. And your body responds to that in exactly the same way. You know, if you worry about a problem and you're stressed out about a problem and you continue to bring it up in your mind, if you were to look at that in a functional MRI at the same time as you were being actually in that stressful situation, saying facing a tiger you'd have the exact same stress response, the exact same stress hormones, the exact same heart rate, etc. We can convince ourselves that we're about to die and we'll feel that anxiety and that stress. So mastering that, finding ways to cope with those intrusive thoughts, finding ways to maintain that mental fortitude and that vigilance, and I think vigilance is kind of the watchword for me, when it comes to dealing with intrusive thoughts. So I wish it were as simple as stop worrying about that. And it was done. For me, it's stop worrying about that about every 20 seconds. When I catch myself starting to think about it and worry about it and chew on it some more, I have to tell myself, stop, let it go. Do the things that you can do. You're currently working on this problem. Worrying about it in your head is not going to make it better. And it's exhausting because you have to keep doing it. Every time that intrusive thought comes up, you have to push it back down. You have to be forceful with your own mind and your own consciousness and say, hey, stop worrying about that because you can't solve that particular problem. You can't solve that particular aspect and you're just spinning your wheels. For me, I found that the more that I do that, 
the more that I practice that, the more that I have vigilance on my own thought processes, the better I get at it. And even last week when I was in the thick of it and really struggling, yeah, I remember driving to the store to go get some supplies and I just couldn't let it go. Every time I thought I had a couple moments of peace, wham, those intrusive thoughts again. I know how difficult it can be. And I'm very fortunate that I'm able to deal with it. I'm able to cope with it. Barely sometimes, but I am able to cope with it. If you are not, it's not because you're weak. It's not because anything. I'm lucky. I'm trying to pass on some of the tips and tools that I have, but I'm fortunate. You may be less fortunate in that no matter how hard you try, you can't stop these thoughts. And in that case, you should seek help from somebody else. You should seek help, whether it's pharmaceuticals or counseling, whatever. I'm encouraging you to go and do this. But for the rest of us that don't have as severe a problem, these are some tips and tricks that can help you with that. So one of the things for me, and I know this is going to seem very niche, but you might have something that's similar to this. If I can manage to occupy my mind fully, the thoughts are gone. So for me, for example, as some of you know, I do recreational historical combat. I put on armor and I go out to a park with like-minded people like me and we fight each other. Full contact. We're really hitting each other. We're really trying to win. It's a sport. And when I'm fighting, I am not thinking about anything besides the fight. I don't have any concerns about money or getting old or my current problems, the war in Ukraine, the Supreme Court. All that goes away because I am entirely focused on this one thing. Now, armored combat may not be for you. It may not be the thing that works for you. You may not have access to being a armored combatant. But I know some of you box recreationally. I know some of you do other martial arts recreationally. I know, I know some of you play sports, for example. A lot of you are into video games that require a lot of concentration and focus. And there's nothing wrong with escaping to that. I think sometimes we have a diminished view of escapism as if somehow it's bad. You can't escape from life entirely. You can't spend your entire life playing video games or fighting or running or whatever it is that you can do that takes your mind off your problems. You do have to face them at some point. But if you are dealing with intrusive thoughts, if you're dealing with high stress and anxiety and depression, indulging in that escapism can give you some time to relax. It can give you some time to let those stress hormones diminish and deplete from your system. It can give you some time to reflect where you're not bombarded by those intrusive thoughts. So for me, going and fighting on Sunday was a huge relief. I needed to do that. That was therapy for me because when I wasn't fighting, I was thinking about my problems. But when I was fighting, I was having a good time and I was enjoying the camaraderie and the friendship that I have in that sport. And I was not thinking about my problems. You know, unfortunately, when I got done fighting, I had to come back to the real world and I had to deal with my problems again. But after fighting, after that escapism, I was much better prepared because I was finally able to get that break. I was finally able to let those stress hormones deplete a little bit, exhaust myself physically, let my mind be in a place of, you know, zero balance and ease for a couple hours. And that was a huge help. You know, I wish I could have done that every day last week for a couple hours. Some of you can work out very intensely and you'll get that same kind of release or playing a game, like I said, boxing, aerobics, taekwondo, something that involves all of your physicality. So for example, for me, I can't just watch a movie. If I try to watch a movie when I'm feeling this kind of anxiety, I will not watch the movie. I will be replaying this anxiety and this depression and this fear and this, you know, anger that I'm having that will just play on an endless loop in my brain. But if I can manage to occupy all of my senses, my physicality and my mind and doing something that I need to focus on, sometimes that gives me relief. So that's something that I would encourage if you have something or something is accessible to you 
that requires your full concentration and often your full physicality, I would recommend that. That is a very good stress-fighting technique. Works for me. Hopefully that might work for you as well. You know, as I said, not everybody's able to go put on armor and fight people at a public park. Something else that really helps me, because it requires my entire concentration, is singing and playing the piano. You know, that requires everything I've got. I'm not a very good piano player. So in order to do that, I need my full concentration and my full focus. So I found relief in that. I could come down here. I've got my studio set up to my left here. And I was able to find that same kind of peace and quiet in my brain by focusing everything I had on playing and singing. That's another thing that I enjoy doing. And again, it was one of those, why didn't I do this earlier? Because the day before I was just racked with stress. I couldn't let it go. It was eating me up inside. And when I finally remembered, oh yeah, there's something you can do. Go play some music, go play piano, go use your whole brain and your physicality at the same time and get that relief, get that small vacation away from dealing with that stress. So singing may be something you can do. I can't say that meditation in and of itself is effective for me. It might work for you. You might be able to get to a place in meditation where you are able to shut down those intrusive thoughts and only focus on good things, a mantra, or something that helps you deal with stress. For me, meditation would kind of be throwing fuel on the fire. If I sit down in a quiet place and try to meditate, what I'm going to meditate on is my problem. I don't know if I have the mental toughness to push that away for 25 minutes during a meditation session. So it may work for you. I'm not saying that it cannot work for you. For me, I would avoid any quiet meditation type spaces because that's kind of the problem that I'm dealing with is when I try to quiet my mind, that's where those intrusive thoughts come in. So yeah, physical exercise, physical activity, anything that requires your full concentration and attention. Perhaps doing crosswords or Sudoku, video games, something that you need to really have your full involvement in. And on the flip side of that, during all last week, I tried to avoid having downtime where I had nothing to do but think because my stress levels were so high and because that anxiety was so high. So again, is that dealing with the stress? Yeah, I got through it. Would I have been helped by having some sort of medication? Maybe. I don't know. I have not been diagnosed with that kind of thing. It's likely that if I went and talked to a psychiatrist, they might give me an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. I've been fortunate enough in my life that I have been able to deal with it. I have been able to manage my stress to the point where it keeps me from being debilitated by it. I'm not saying that I'm a superman or that I'm better than you if you are taking an antidepressant. If anything, I'm a bit dumber that I didn't go get help when I was really suffering. So please don't take anything I'm saying as just tough it out, be a man. I'm not. I'm truly not. So yeah, that's that's kind of how I came up with the title of this was I realized after fighting that that was the biggest stress reliever, the biggest anti-anxiety boost I'd had all week. And the thought popped into my mind, you know, what's more manly than dealing with stress by going and fighting? In my case, that works really well for me. But I wanted to apply that to other things. I wanted to apply that to things that you might be able to do, things that are accessible to people that aren't involved in medieval armored combat. So yeah, manage stress like a man. On that same notion, on this whole notion of just toughen up, just bear through it. Just be a man. This is a BDSM kink poly podcast, right? And one of the things that is really expected of dominance is that they have their shit together, that they can deal with stress, they can deal with anxiety, that they are bulletproof, that they're rocks, that they never show signs of weakness, that they just have their stuff together at all times. And that is a good goal as a dominant, you should have your stuff together. You should have good control of your emotions. You should have good control of your anxiety and your depression and things like that. That's part of being a dominant person. 
But that doesn't mean that you are incapable of having weeks or a month where you're struggling. And I think part of the thing that pushes some people over the edge into being very unhealthy is not allowing themselves frailty, not allowing themselves fallibility, not allowing themselves the notion of you're not perfect. And this coming from a dom, I made a meme once where I was joking that my personal philosophy is when I'm dealing with my subs, I'm incredibly generous with them and patient with them and comforting with them. And I recognize their flaws and I try to work with their flaws. And when they get down, I try to build them up. But with myself, I'm incredibly harsh and incredibly unyielding and incredibly cruel sometimes. The inner monologue I have with myself is, you know, it's not kind. I expect a lot out of myself. And I'm very cross with myself and very unyielding with myself when I fail. And I fail a lot. I fail as much as any human being does. Part of being dominant is being unyielding, is striving to be better at all times. It's trying to be the best. It's trying to be a rock, like I was saying. But you also have to balance that with understanding that you're not always going to be infallible. You're not always going to be bulletproof. You're not always going to be that rock. So there is this kind of push and pull as a dominant person. I do expect doms to strive to be the best possible person they can be and, and have that self-discipline, have that confidence, have that drive and that mental fortitude and toughness to be a dominant person. It takes a lot and it takes personal discipline, for example, to be a dominant. But you also need to balance that with understanding that you're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to fall down. Sometimes you're going to get depressed or anxious and have anxiety. And you have to give yourself enough slack that you can overcome it. Because it's very easy to fall into a trap of self-loathing. If you expect yourself to be on this level and you're only getting to this level, hating yourself for that isn't going to make you better. Try to turn that kind of self-anger, that self-loathing, that, you know, you fucking donkey. Try to turn that into, hey, you know what? You fell down get back up and try again. Try to try to turn that inner monologue if you have the same kind of inner monologue that I do. Don't beat yourself up too much. As a dom, it can be detrimental to give yourself too much slack. And we'll probably get into that at some point where you do need to hold yourself to a very high standard. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But you cannot be completely unyielding. I think you do have to give yourself a little bit of grace, a little bit of hey, you know what? You're trying hard and you're failing. So we're going to work this out. We're going to get back up, take some time off if you need it. And I mention this because as dominance, we're frequently in charge of somebody else. And when you're struggling internally, when you're having a really hard time holding yourself together, it's very difficult to be a good leader. And you have to be very careful not to take out that anxiety and that anger and that frustration on the people that you're in charge of and the people that have entrusted you with their submission. So this is very important for doms. We have to get our own mental health in order. Sometimes it feels like we don't have anybody that we can turn to and we are supposed to be these perfect rocks, like I've said before. Understand that you're not always going to be a rock. Sometimes you're going to have a really hard time. And if you need to seek help, if you need to find somebody that can give you counseling, if you need to take a medication, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it would be unmanly. I think it would be undominant. It would be bad dominant behavior to feel like you're failing and not being able to hold on and not being able to cope. And instead of seeking help, just trying to go on it on your own and solve the problem by yourself. I think we all need a little help sometimes. So... I'm giving my permission as a man. I've got the beard. I've got the receding hairline. I've got the very manly attitude. It's perfectly okay to seek help. There is nothing unmanly about seeking help. There's nothing undominant about seeking help. In fact, you might very well owe it to your submissives to seek help to get your own mental health in order. 
you know, last week I was fortunate in that Katya was away, you know, in New York on a trip. So I literally only had to deal with myself and I only had to deal with my own problems. And it was very fortuitous because I think had Katya been here, I might've had to say, Hey, you know what? For this week, I can't be your dominant. I cannot instruct you and lead you and guide you because I'm barely holding myself together. I'm barely keeping it together myself. I don't have the ability right now to deal with you as well and be a good leader to you. So right now you have to kind of stand on your own. I didn't have to do that, but I might very well have had she been here. That said, another coping mechanism that I have found very successful for myself is when I'm having a huge amount of anxiety and depression and dealing with internal struggles, if I can turn my focus outwards to help somebody else, that can be the kind of focus that I need to get through it. Very much like fighting or doing something else that allows me to focus my full time and attention on another subject. Frequently, I've been able to, you know, turn that hard spotlight that's doing me no good in worry and turn that focus on somebody else that may be having a problem and helping them. And when I'm dealing with them and their problem, I'm not worrying about my own problems as much. This one, again, you have to be careful with, you have to balance it. This is the kind of thing that can become unhealthy if you're always running away from your own problems and seeking other people's issues. I think that could become unhealthy. But I have been able to in the past, you know, I'm having a really bad day, I'm having a hard time, something really bad has happened, and my partner comes home and they need me. They need me to be there for them for whatever reason. And I'm able to just drop whatever anxieties I had, whatever depression I had, whatever was going on in my life, I'm often able to just forget about it and deal with them. And maybe that's just how I'm wired, but that is something that works. So maybe if Katya were here last week and she was having a hard time, it would have been easier for me. I don't know. I can only deal with what actually happened, which was I was here by myself, working my fingers to the bone trying to solve this problem. So... As usual, I've gone on a long time about this. There's a lot more that I want to say about dealing with stress like a man in this particular series. Obviously, the things that I'm talking about are not relegated to us double Y chromo boys. This is stuff that I think works for everybody. These are things that I think we all deal with stress. We all deal with anxiety. We all deal with depression. This is not a man thing. There are some male-specific things that I was talking about. For example, the stigma around seeking mental help or admitting weakness, etc. And part of that is we have this idea that men aren't allowed to experience the full range of emotions that human beings are capable of. Like men are limited to this eight-pack of Crayola colors, and that's all we get. And most of those are anger. And... I got to tell you that men can experience the full range of human emotion, the whole 64-pack extra-large version of the Crayola box, but you have to give yourself permission to do that. You have to ignore the societal conditioning that's been forced on you that says, boys don't cry, toughen up, be a man, all that stuff. That's just limiting your life. That's giving you one or two crayons to try and color the whole world with. And it's bullshit. It's nonsense. And I'm, I'm sick of it. I think that you can be the toughest, burliest, most masculine, dominant person in the world. And if seeing a little girl playing with a puppy doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you're missing out. You're not allowing yourself that full richness of what humans can experience and why would you do that to impress somebody else that's emotionally repressed i don't think so i will get into that more this is going to be something that i talk about again this has gone on for quite a bit i'm really tired and i need to get this edited down so i will leave you with that for this week some coping mechanisms on how to deal with stress especially intrusive thoughts my permission to go out there and get some help if you need it my very strong words about destigmatizing mental health, destigmatizing drugs that might help you with your mental health, 
you know, don't listen to the media telling you that it's bad. It's not. I've seen people's lives changed. I've seen people's lives saved by having good, effective mental health care. So, your call to action, like and subscribe. Go to wickedfellow.com if you want to find all of our media. Our Patreon is there. If you want to give us a couple bucks, that would really help. It might be especially important in the next couple months or so as we're dealing with the kind of a crisis here. But I'm going to keep trying to get these podcasts out to you guys. This is very important to me. I enjoy this interaction. I had a number of people write me and ask me, hey, where's the podcast I missed last week? And I don't feel pressure by that. I don't feel like that's you tapping your foot. I really appreciate it. It lets me know that there are people out there that look forward to this. Because sometimes it can feel like I'm just shouting into the void. So yeah, if you don't see the podcast and you miss it, shoot me a line and say, hey dude, where's my podcast at? I, I really appreciate that. You guys are the best. All of you that listen, all of you that subscribe, all of you that write. This is a great interactive community that we're trying to build here. I think that we're just getting started. I would love to see this grow. I would love to see this become bigger and reach more people. But if I never get another subscriber and I just have the people that I'm talking to right now, I am still incredibly lucky to have this platform to talk to you guys, maybe give you guys some help. And I enjoy all the stuff that you guys give me back, all the fan mail, all the likes and comments. It makes this really worthwhile. As always, consent is king. Take very good care of each other. And I'll see you next week. Okay. Couldn't figure out why my lighting wasn't working. And then I realized I had moved my main light. The inverse square law is a real thing. It's hard to get a good whiskey sour mix. This is a, uh, this is a drink that I should learn how to make from scratch because I don't think I've ever had a really good whiskey sour mix. Bitter Milk, which is a company that makes drink mixers, makes a smoked old-fashioned. That's pretty good. It's not really an old-fashioned, but it's a good mixed drink. Maybe I should try and find their whiskey sour mix. One more.